Welcome back to another episode of You Have My Interest, the show that helps you make smart moves with your money by giving you tips, tricks, and tools to help navigate your wealth journey. I'm your host, Evelyn Clark, Director and Finance Broker at Everland. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording and you are listening today. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome back to our guest interview series on the You Have My Interest podcast. Today, I am joined by Nick Green from Oak Capital to talk all things private lending. For those who don't know what private lending is, it is effectively an investor-backed lending arm. So you've got your major banking and your sort of um, non-banking lenders that a lot of people have heard about. Then you've also got private lenders who do more specialized lending or generally are providing some sort of a solution or a an opportunity for clients to get funding uh, faster than they can potentially through a major bank or because they can't get lending through a major bank. Now, private lending is really only available for business customers or for business purposes. So it's not going to be available for a mum and dad purchasing a their first property or their second property. It's generally more so for people that are looking at some sort of business type of finance and aren't eligible for a major bank or need funding a lot quicker, as we'll go through with Nick in terms of what the pros and cons are to using private lenders. Now, Nick's experience, he's been with Oak Capital now for three years, joining the business as the head of distribution in 2020. He works on the broking side of the business, building relationships with brokers, having extensive experience through residential and commercial lending himself. He brings that experience into the Oak Capital team and works to develop relationships with brokers and to give them the tools that they need to succeed in obtaining uh, private funding and how they can put up the best application possible for their clients if that is the type of lending that their clients need. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Nick and delve into the world of private lending. Hi, Nick. How are you? Thanks so much for joining me today. Good. Thanks, Evelyn. I'm, I'm well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, really well, thank you. And um, you may or may not want me to share, but you've just had some exciting news. You just recently got married. <laughs> I did. I did. We, uh, it took me a good 10 years. Uh, yeah. To finally, uh, t- finally tie the knot. Um, we, we decided to actually get married for our 10-year anniversary. So that's, oh, that's... That's so nice. Well, you're basically already married, right? <laughs> well, pretty much. <laughs> that pretty much has changed sort of a week after. It's pretty much exactly how it was before. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, the wedding was a lot of fun. Um, we had a lot of laughs. It was very small, just sort of family and, and a few close friends. But um, yeah, a lot, lot, of fun. lot of fun. Yeah, nice. Oh, well, congratulations. Thank you. And for those who don't know, today we're going to be talking about private lending, which uh, we have discussed previously is definitely sort of more of an emerging market in the finance space. But I would say the majority of people wouldn't really have any clue what private lending actually is. So can you give us a little bit of a background on, first of all, who is Oak and also what is private lending? Yeah, of course. And look, I I agree with your comments. I think that, I think that, you know, private lending has actually been around for a long time. You know, there's, there's some lenders that have been around for over 20 years. Um, Over Capital has been around for, for 10 years. Um, we're actually celebrating our 10th anniversary this year. But I think particularly post-COVID, and obviously we all, we're all aware of the impacts to business owners um, that, that sort of took place because of lockdowns, I think naturally what it does is it, it's created a, a real opportunity for private lenders to really come in and, and play a role within the finance industry. Sort of pre-COVID, my, my view personally was that 
there were a lot of specialist brokers that sort of played heavily in our space. I feel like now um, you're sort of seeing, seeing us, the private lenders are joining aggregator panels. There's a lot more of a, a, a borrower need for it because of the fact of you know serviceability, uh, you know credit appetite, etc. So I think it's a lot more mainstream now than, than what it has been traditionally. But to your point, you know what is what is private lending? So I guess the the best way to explain it um, from where I sit is to probably look at the market as a whole. So you've sort of got your first tier or what we call the first tier, which is your banks, sort of your major banks, and then your Macquarie's, your ING's. Um, and then you've got your second tiers, which is your sort of major non-banks. So you think about the likes of Liberty, Pepper, Latrobe, et cetera. And then there's what we call the third tier, which is effectively, you know, where we sit. So, and and private lenders effectively cap- capture the market um, of that the aforementioned lenders are unable to capture for a range of reasons, predominantly around risk appetite. Um, and, and the lending is on a short-term basis rather than a set and forget long-term lending facility or a tradi- that the traditional um, sort of lenders operate. So mm. um, sort of, I guess, private lending in a nutshell without going too deep into products, et cetera. Um, your second question was around Oak Capital. So yeah. is uh, an alternative non-bank lender, that's sort of how we position ourselves these days, given that there are so many private lenders in market. We've been around for, for around 10 years now. And the way that we operate is we actually sort of, we, we, raise capital on a deal by deal basis to so mm-hmm. run two mortgage funds being a retail fund and a wholesale fund and that sort of you can sort of explain what that looks like at a product level but that's effectively what we do we offer loans for sme borrowers so we don't lend um to, to consumers we only lend to businesses and and the purpose of the funds needs to be um business related yeah and you know our loan terms are up to 24 months so typically our our standard term is 12 months um if you look at the average term on our book it's probably about nine and a half mm-hmm. but we can go up in four months um if the exit strategy makes sense yeah so okay. a bit about yeah awesome and you make some really good points there actually if i just sort of jump back a little bit you mentioned also that um there are more and more private lenders starting to come on aggregator panels and definitely i would say pre-covid your from a mortgage broking perspective your view of a private lender was that it wasn't someone that was on panel you had to go off panel and it was kind of like if none of the banks could do it from a and as you say from more of an sme or a business perspective then you would look at engaging a private lender but Private lenders definitely had a little bit of a bad, not bad reputation, but there were some negative connotations to private lending. Do you think that that view is starting to be reframed and reshaped now, given that there are a lot more players in the market and particularly as they're coming on aggregated panels, that must give some sort of reassurance to borrowers now that these uh, private lenders have also been ticked off by aggregators in order for them to engage with brokers? Yeah, look, uh, you make a really good point. Um, we're, we're absolutely aligned on that. Um, I think that it's you know like any industry, um, there's there there are some operators in market that you know don't necessarily do the right things. And unfortunately for private lending, I think um, it, you know going back sort of three to five years, there was a bit of a stigma that existed around private lenders being that they're out to sort of charge exorbitant fees and really high interest rates and. Um, they're really just there to sort of make themselves money. I, I think the the mindset around that has changed pretty significantly, um, certainly post-COVID like we touched on before. Um, the reality is there is a genuine um, borrower need for, for what, what it is that we do. And given that, you know, private lenders do take on a riskier type of asset or borrower, 
it is really a rate for risk sort of play. But I think you're pointing around the aggregation piece. You know, my background, I worked at Plan Australia for seven years myself. So I absolutely understand the, the broker side of it as, as well. You know, my, my, my tip would be there are so many private lenders that exist in this market. So making sure that you deal with the approved lenders that are on your mm. panel. Um, you know, Oak's fortunate enough where we're on majority of the panel um, panels out there at the moment. But I think one of the things that brokers may not necessarily realize or, or sort of forget is that um, in most cases, if, you, if you've got PI insurance through your aggregator, if you're dealing with a, a lender that's not approved on the panel, um, you're actually not insured or covered as well. Mm. And I think that's a, a real key call out. Um, and that's why some of the more commercial specialists have gone out and sourced their own PI. They've got their own ACL, et cetera. But by and large, in my experience, the majority of brokers these days are, are actually setting up as credit reps under the license of the aggregator. So it's yeah, really correct. Mindful of. Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on also where Oak Capital gets their funding from in terms of on a deal by deal basis. Uh, so in terms of looking at the broader range of private lenders, is that the most common way that you do obtain funds? How does that look from a borrower perspective? Yeah, really good question. So I think traditionally private lenders um, have have been set up so that they have investors and whatever that looks like, um, you know, you may have, you know, uh, I guess some sort of mortgage funds. As I mentioned before, Oak runs two mortgage funds that sort of coexist. And, you know, in some cases, private lenders actually raise money through their own balance sheet as well. So there's a range of ways that private lenders can can obtain their funding and lend their money out. Um, I, I think the best way to put it is you look at banks, you know, banks are f- typically funded by depositors. For private lenders that don't actually have depositors, they've got investors. And so, you know, with an investor basis, it's almost like peer-to-peer lending. So, mm. um, you know, typically you'll have a transaction that gets formally approved and is ready to be instructed. At that point in time, the capital will then be raised through the investor network. Um, and it's yeah, effectively sort of matchmaking a deal with the right investor based on their appetite and based on the risk appetite of the lender. Yeah, that um, makes sense. There is a bit of a trend from what I'm seeing. Some of the newer players coming into market where um, they've actually got sort of uh, I guess warehouse facility funding as well, and that has its that's ha- has its advantages too. But you know, it's it's probably more the the newer lenders coming into market. That's sort of adopting that approach. The guys have been around like we have, and some of the other um, longer-term players are typically set up with a with a mortgage fund structure because we've been around for a while. There's there's a, a large network of active investors, um, and, yeah. and we we don't see that changing from an open perspective moving. Yeah, either. yeah. Have there ever been instances where, uh, or do borrowers need to be concerned about investors not being able to come to the table once a deal is approved, or is that sort of You've got such an established book of investors that it would very rarely be the case that the funds couldn't then be released in time. Really good question. You know, Oak Capital's view and mantra really is we will not issue an approval unless we're willing to fund it and have have the absolute confidence that we'll fund it. Mm. Um, and probably a, not a red flag, but something to be mindful of in our space. It's very easy to obtain an indicative offer in the private lending landscape. Um, you know, a lot of the time, unfortunately, that indicative offer may not be worth too much. You know, the Oak Capital view um, is really we will not issue an approval unless we're we're willing and able to fund it. I think because we've got such an established brand and have been around for such a long time, and our investors do actually never lost any money with us through that period, it gives them a lot of confidence that 
I guess our credit processes are quite stringent. Um, we've got a correct process that we adhere to. We're fully licensed with AFSLs and ACLs. So it gives them a lot of confidence that we are lending to the right borrower for the right purpose um, against the right assets. So we've personally never had an issue with being able to fund a transaction, but I can't speak for you know the broader, the broader industry. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And so I guess that kind of brings me probably to a question around what people need to look out for when they are engaging with private lenders. What? We've mentioned a little bit about the actual funding itself, but if people aren't, uh, you know, if they're new to the space or if they haven't really dealt with private lenders before, what are some of the things that people need to be aware of or potential red flags that could be an issue if they are looking at getting funding from a private lender? Um, yeah, good question. I think, um, you know, like everyone in finance says, and you've probably said it, I've certainly said it, um, you know, this industry is built around two things really, and that's relationships and reputation. Yeah. So these things take years to build, uh, but can be damaged in a matter of seconds, to be fair. So given this point, you know, the things I encourage brokers to look out for and, and aggregators to, um, is probably there's, there's a couple. So the first one is, you know, brokers purporting to be private lenders themselves. And we do see a little bit of this in our space, uh, when really they're just a middleman that's kind of, um, I, I guess helping a, another broker seek private lending through a funder and they're sort of setting themselves up as the lender and really just adding a margin in we, we do right. see a bit of that so that's something to be mindful of always understand who the actual lender is the second one which is a bit of a bugbear of mine as well is the upfront non-refundable commitment fees and when you when you haven't had experience in private lending um, you, you may come across um, mandates or, or commitment fees and it's making sure that you read the detail in the offer because a lot of the time as soon as you sign the offer that, that that's that's it and a little bit, again a lot of the time when you when you're sort of paying upfront commitment fees it's non-refundable so even if the deal isn't going ahead whether the valuation doesn't stack up or the borrower actually you know gets a better offer or the broker sorry gets a, a better offer elsewhere um unfortunately those commitment fees a lot of the time are, are not refundable so that's a yeah. really big flag for mine um you know o capital doesn't do that we've never charged any upfront non non-refundable commitment fees and then the third is um, like we've already touched on, which is, you know, if you're a broker that's looking to, I guess, diversify in this space for private lending is making sure that you're dealing with a lender that's actually on your aggregator panel. Yeah. It's really important that, you know, you're dealing with a lender that's reputable, um, has gone through the due diligence process with an aggregator and, and these things do take months. There's a lot of checks and balances that get made. Um, so that should give you the confidence that you're dealing with a lender um, that you can trust um, and that you can build a relationship with. So they're probably the main things that I would sort of, um, I, I guess, raise for, for brokers that are looking to get into this space. Yeah, awesome. I think you make some really good points there. And it is really about doing that due diligence, making sure that you are reading the fine print, as you say. And would you even go as far as to say, do you require legal, legal advice or um, people to have their loan documents reviewed by a solicitor prior to signing? Yeah, great question. So for us, every single transaction requires legal advice. Yeah. So it's part of our document process. So we've got really tight and stringent, I guess, settlement processes in place with our lawyers to make yeah. sure that we're not only protecting ourselves and our investors, but also that the borrowers protect themselves. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, awesome. I think that's a really important one, particularly when you're talking about company borrowing and you've got guarantors and things being the directors, um, having that extra layer of a really solid a solicitor um, review or advice is going to make sure that you're not getting into something that's going to cause you issues down the track as well. 
Yep, I, I yeah. agree with that. At the end of the day, you know, it is a, it's an unregulated space, right? So, you know, it, whilst we've got some pretty strong processes in place and other private lenders do as well, uh, at the end of the day, it is unregulated. So it's just, it's that added step of just being really, we're really conscious of reading the, the offers, reading the, the mortgage docs and making sure that you're across all the detail and then getting that advice from, from, from your solicitor as well. Yeah, perfect. And so if we look at private lending versus bank lending, let's say, what would you say the main differences are for a borrower when they are looking to, obviously there's going to be a cost difference, fees and, and rates and things like that. What would you say are the top differences for a borrower going through a bank versus a private lender? Okay. So you can look at it. This is the way I sort of look at it and, yeah. and explain um, for, for brokers that ask this question. So um, everyone knows that when you're dealing with a bank or a sort of mainstream lender, there's really four C's to, yeah. to credit process, right? So you've got sort of capacity, which is how much you know can be borrowed and repaid. You've got capital, which is how much the borrower is looking to contribute. Um, then there's character. So you know, can the borrower actually be trusted to pay back the money? Um, and then collateral. So that sort of serves as the insurance for the lender. These are all really important points and still factored into, I guess, private lending. But realistically, from where I sit, the, the credit the credit view is probably a little bit different. So really we're looking for, um, so who's the borrower? So who are we actually lending the money to? That's particularly important when you're doing business lending, right? Because you're, you're lending to a corporate entity. So it's really to understand who the borrower is. What's the purpose of the loan? So what's the money actually being used for? Um, for us, you know, we really want to make sure that the, the money is being used for a, a true commercial purpose. Um, so the asset, so what what is the asset type? Um, so whether it's the commercial vacant land, the location and the quality of the asset. The LVR, so you'll probably notice when playing in our space is, is in private lending is a little bit um, more conservative on the LVR piece just because of the risk component associated with most private lending transactions. And then the exit strategy. So, you know, how are we actually going to be paid back? Is the mm. proposal the exit strategy realistic? Um, and if you can tick off those those items and, and get comfortable with those items as a private lender, um, you should, in most cases, be able to make an offer yeah. um, to, that, to that broker and borrower. So they're probably the real sort of key differences that exist between mainstream lending and, and private lending. Yeah, perfect. And so why would a client come to a private lender over a bank if they are looking for finance? Yeah, okay. So um, I guess it could be for a range of things, but typically it's around two two points. So you come to a private lender, um, A, because it's just not a transaction that's going to fit the realm of a mainstream funder and that could yep. be because of the asset type it could be the borrower um, it could be for things such as impairment it might be because of postcode restrictions or the type of asset uh, we all know that you know development funding as an example um, is really hard to get through the mainstream um, lenders and major banks at the moment yeah now while we don't do development funding there are private lenders that do offer development funding and they do it very well it could be things because of something like a tax debt, for example. Um, you know, a lot of mainstream lenders won't touch a borrower that's got a tax debt. They won't actually give them the money to pay out a tax debt as well. So yeah. it could be for a range of reasons, but typically it's because you have a short-term um, issue or opportunity. So it could either be an issue or an opportunity. Yeah. Um, where you acquire funding quickly so that a private lender basically comes in and plays a role, but it's not the long-term set-and-forget approach. It's really to yeah. come in and solve a problem or provide an opportunity for 
you know, as a developer who's got some uh, residual stock, wants to cash out really quickly on some of the retained stock mm-hmm. to be help you with the next project, things like that. So um, it's really to solve a problem or to provide cash quickly um, because there's a, a buying opportunity that there's just not enough time um, to get done through a mainstream lender. Yeah. And to that point, would you say that timeframes and speed speed to funds is actually one of the positives to working with a private lender in terms of being able to secure that opportunity faster? I, I think absolutely. You know, yeah. from an capital point of view, if you want to talk about sort of niches, you know, one of the things that we're really well known for in market is we actually employ um, a team of full-time CPV valuers. Um, and what that means is whilst we have the um, ability to instruct an external valuation from an external valuation firm and provider, we also have the um, ability to do property research internally if there is a time-critical transaction. So um, having the ability to turn around property research within the space of a few hours or a day versus you know a week or two, depending on the asset type and location, gives us a really good um, sort of a unique advantage in market. And it's probably what we're well known for getting mm. a deal in on a day and being able to settle it by a Thursday or a Friday. Yeah, um, it, it really powerful. Um, you know, I guess niche niche offering to to be able to take to market. And to be fair, I'd say eighty percent of what we do is is around time sensitive um, opportunities. Yeah, awesome. Whereas compared to when you look at, I mean, there's so many things that we can delve into there. But if you look at, for example, the difference that it would take for that same transaction to go through potentially a major bank or, you know, even like a second tier uh, mainstream lender, uh, it could take them weeks or months to get the same outcome. And yes, they may save a little bit potentially on rate or fees, but overall that may actually mean that the client misses out on an opportunity, you know, the additional time frame that it's taken them has cost them money in the actual asset purchase or whatever it might be. So there is definitely a really big point to be made around the timeframes that it takes. And as you say, it's solution-based focus to be able to get that client into either whatever opportunity they need quickly or to um, ensure that they can have some sort of a solution for a period of time before they then may be eligible for a mainstream lender uh, or mainstream bank. You've summed it up absolutely perfectly there. Um, so <laughs> it comes down to opportunity cost. Um, you know, one of the other things to consider is when you're instructing an external valuation for a commercial asset, mm. a lot of the time it's a long-term val, uh, sorry, long-form val, but yeah. it can take long-term to get done. But there's also a cost associated with that, and it yeah. could be in thousands of dollars. So to be able to complete research internally um, on that same asset for, you know, much less of a cost, I'm talking sub $1,000 and mm-hmm. get it a day or two, it, it's a quite a powerful solution to take to market um, in the business lending space. So again, that's that's where we see a lot of opportunities come through. Yeah, awesome. So what types of transactions do you see and, and what are Oak Capital's niches? You mentioned you don't do construction or development specifically, but yep. who are your most common clients? Uh, good question again. So the most common clients that we certainly see um, from an Oak perspective um, they're usually clients that have some form um, of, I guess, challenge. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I used the example of a tax debt before. So, we had a deal that um, we had a deal that came in the other the other week where um, this was a bankable client and already had facilities with a bank, but they had a significant tax debt, and so their existing lender wouldn't help them mm. with being able to, um, I guess, restructure their finance to pay out the, the debt. So. 
rather than us sort of try and take everything away and bring it to Oak, we effectively just, that they were quite asset backed. They turned over a lot of money. Um, and whilst it was a pretty, um, I guess, complex structure by way of entities um, and assets, we're able to understand it really well and identify a few assets where there was equity there. And, and we're able to come in and clear that ATO debt. Um, we put it on a 12-month term with a minimum of three. They'll probably get paid out um, within six and, and go back to their mainstream provider or, or another mainstream provider. That sort of stuff is stuff that we do day in, day out. Second to that, you know, developers are, are great clients as well. And whilst we do development finance or construction loans, um, we do do a lot of residual stock. So for those that don't understand residual stock, the, the best way to describe it is um, if you've got a, um, call it a part-time developer or not one of the sort of big players that do, does projects of sort of six to eight townhouses, you know, um, you know, once or twice or three times a year, a lot of the time they will sell sort of four out of six townhouses, retain two, um, and want to cash out against those retained assets to help secure the next project site. Yeah. That we do a lot of that as well. And because we have the ability to capitalize interest um, in most cases for the full term, if the exit makes sense, um, it means that the developer doesn't actually have to make repayments for the full term of the loan. And once they sell the asset, that's when they pay us back and they've secured their next site. So we do a lot of the the residual stock stuff too. Yeah. Um, bridging finance, you know, bridging finance is a big one as well. A lot of lenders won't touch bridging finance, even if you're an existing borrower to an existing lender and you want yeah. to buy the property, they won't help you with that. We see a lot of that. Um, and second mortgages is probably the last one as well. So second mortgages is probably a bit of a, um, I wouldn't say a dying breed, but there aren't too many lenders out there that, that do it and do it well these days. We've got real appetite for it for second mortgages and we don't, um, there, there's some requirements that we, that we don't need as well to make it quite quickly. So the ability to not have to get sign off from the first mortgagee and, and, and just get that done again, mm -hmm. a, a quick solution is pretty unique as well. Yeah, awesome. And so just to touch on second mortgages in a little bit more detail, if someone's not aware of what that means and why they may need that, um, and probably for my own personal learning as well, but with the second mortgage, is that generally because they're needing to top up the loan a little bit more and they can't get any more funds or the loan to value ratio can't budge any higher from their existing lender or That's you can just, yeah, you can get a little bit more cash out of an existing property without bringing the debt over to Oak? That's exactly right. So sometimes, and, and understandably so, the borrower may not want to take the entire debt across to a private lender because the rate is higher. And that's yeah. very understood. So, you know, having the ability to offer a second mortgage product where we're only taking um, a, a smaller amount over that that asset as a registered second mortgage um, gives us the ability uh, or gives the borrower the ability to actually maintain their existing, uh, I guess, structure with their, with their existing lender. And to be able to do that quickly to provide cash for whatever reason, like we, we see a lot of business owners, whether it's coffee shops, whether it's restaurants, um, a lot of hospitality um, and the fitness industry as well, you know, come to us for a second mortgage when they only need it for sort of three to six months, which is yeah, okay. Uh, and it's really just to, whether it's to do a fit out on, on the actual, um, on the actual place of business or whether it's because it's to help with um, cash flow, whatever it may be. Uh, we take a fair bit of that as well, and and being able to, to to make an offer to help them help these business owners with that those sort of opportunities um, is is a really good feeling because there's a lot of mainstream lenders that, that can't actually do that. So um, having that ability is is pretty awesome. Yeah, awesome. And so basically, as long as you've got you mentioned all those parameters before as to what goes into assessing the the 
the appetite for the transaction from a risk perspective or from credits perspective. But as long as all of those factors in terms of the purpose of the fund stack up, and then you've got the security to take, so that asset or that property to take as well, um, that's where it can basically fit into a private lender's uh, appetite. Yeah, it can. And I think the other one that's important is the exit strategy. So, exit strategy, um, yeah. Yeah, look, at the end of the day, you know, so from an oak perspective, once again, um, we, we are effectively, we, we are entrusted with our investors to lend out their money, right? So we want to make sure that we can get their money back. And so therefore, the, the, the exit strategy needs, needs to make sense. So whether that's through refinancing to um, another lender at the end of the term, that's fine. If you if you do put on there that you do sort of suggest to us that the 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 exit strategy is to refinance, then we're probably going to want to see some detail around income, mm. um, and that's that's sort of a normal part of any credit assessment process. If the exit strategy, however, is to sell the asset that we've taken security over, or to sell another asset, mm. um, then that's okay as well. And and what we'll do is we've got a, a customer care team that's checking with the borrower and the broker at certain milestones throughout the term. Just to make sure that you know the property is being listed and all that sort of jazz, and yeah. you know, that the strategy um, and the time period that we've set for that is still looking like it's achievable. So, you know, it's just putting those checks and balances in place to make sure that the funds can be repaid and and be repaid based on what was you know initially proposed. And in some cases, if that's not you know the ability is not there to do that, you know, you want to make sure again that you're dealing with a lender that has the ability to extend. To, mm-hmm. So, you know, what the offering we have at Oak is. Um, is to provide an extension, you know, to yeah. help a borrower. So at the end of the day, we're here to provide solutions, not to do the wrong thing by the borrower. Yeah, exactly. Really. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes sense. And so probably a couple more questions for you. One around the determining of rates and terms. What goes into how you actually then will calculate what sort of rates the client would be eligible for and what loan term makes sense? Does the client come to you sort of recommending or the broker along with the client recommending, we think we need a term of about X amount of months, or is that something that you'll look at from your experience in taking on similar transactions? How do you determine that? It really depends on the, um, I I guess, what is the opportunity that we're looking at? What is the structure of the transaction? So I'll start with a second mortgage. Second mortgages are at, at high interest rates. So that's just being completely transparent. You're sort of looking at, um, a percentage per month. Um, now that is quite expensive. So you don't really want to be offering a second mortgage for 12 months because yeah. it's not in the best interest of the borrower. So in that sense, you may only offer a maximum of six months. If you're looking at a different type of transaction where I mentioned before residual stock. So, you know, that, that may, you, you may offer an 18 month term because it may take that amount of time to be able to sell the asset or because the the project may take some time to settle, so that that would mean that you would you would be offering a longer term. But yeah. when you look at the rate and fees, um, I guess it really comes down to risk. So, where is the asset located, and more importantly, what type of asset is it, and what's the quality of it? So, for a residential house in a you know metro suburb, you're going to get your your, your better interest rates because it's a nice asset. Um, there's no complexity to it. It's in an area that everyone's familiar of. The, the, the reality is for us, we're, we've got, we're backed by investors. So it really comes down to the appetite of the investors as well. Mm. They want to see a, a, a rate of return on their money. Yep. Um, and therefore, the higher the risk, the higher rate of return that an investor would want to see. So that's probably the the, the best way that I would explain it. A, a, again, it, it'll be whether the, the, the security type is a residential 
asset or whether it's a commercial asset. If it's a commercial asset and it's a warehouse or it's actually something a little bit more specialized, it would be viewed as a little bit more of a risk. Therefore, a rate for risk, it will it will attract a higher interest rate. We're pretty simple with how you sort of, I guess, approach the um, the pricing discussion for our retail um, product, which is, you know, it's through our retail mortgage fund. What that means is at a product level, it's it's really a, our premium product, which means, you know, residential assets or really standard commercial assets like a shop front, for example, um, we always require a, a full valuation. So what that means is we wouldn't use our internal um, valuations team. We would use an external valuation provider. Um, and it typically means that we, we've got time to do that. So it's not a time sensitive transaction. Yeah. Um, so if you're looking at a metro house in, you know, call it Q, for example, and we've got two weeks to get a valve, then you're going to get a rate of, you know, circa nine and a half percent, which is yep. pretty cheap in the private lending market. At the same time, if you've got a borrower that's got some issues around defaults or, you know, they're, they're discharged bankrupt or something like that. Um, and the asset type is, you know, it's a commercial asset and it's a little bit more regional, um, then that would be done for our wholesale fund, which is what we call Accelerate. Now, mm. we call it Accelerate because we don't require an external valuation um, and we can do, use our own internal valuations team, which means we can settle really quickly. And, and I guess there's no need for that um, external valve. So um, again, that would be a, a slightly higher rate, um, but that's how we sort of view it. It, it really depends on what the asset and the borrower type is and yep. what the needs, and then we sort of price it up accordingly. We, whilst we have a, a product guide and a matrix, really every single transaction is priced up on its own merit. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we're known for because we like to, we, we want, really want to work with the broker and the borrower um, to get a, I guess, a proposal that's fair for both parties. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think you summed that up really nicely and it just, it paints a, a picture in terms of um, how that is assessed from the, the lender's perspective as much as what the borrower can expect going into a transaction like that. So yeah, that's awesome. Is there anything else that you think is worth noting for potential borrowers, whether they be developers, whether they be business customers looking for a fit out, whatever it might be, is there anything else that you would recommend that they think about or potentially uh, opportunities that they may be wanting to get through um, a private lender that they don't have the opportunity to through a major bank? A really good question. Um, so I think the first part is something to be mindful of if you're a broker and or borrower. Mm. Uh, we deal with brokers, so we don't we don't deal with with borrowers direct, but there are some lenders, again, that, that can deal with direct borrowers. Um, it's really about being honest and upfront about everything um, from the get-go because mm. You know, in my experience, you'll get a you'll get a transaction proposal that comes through. You read through it, and yes, okay, um, there might be some minor issue there that that really means that a mainstream funder can't come in and play a role for that particular borrower. But then we go through our due diligence process and our credit process, and and we find out, you know, that there, there's a real issue that that yeah. hasn't been, um, I guess, really discussed with us, and that can change what the proposal from a lending perspective looks like at a rate and and, and uh, fee standpoint. And the last thing you want to do as a broker is make a, I guess, provide a pr proposal to a to a borrower. Mm -hmm. And then once the credit process has been done, that proposal changes yeah. because you know, it's been something that's been identified through that process. So my advice would be, be honest and upfront um, from the outset about everything. You know, the reality is private lenders have seen everything, all mm -hmm. sorts of wonderful things. 
um, you're better off just telling us everything you know about the borrower and the borrower telling telling you as a broker everything that they know so that we can save time and that the proposal doesn't change at any point in time um, and we can provide a solution quickly. So that's probably the first point or the first answer to the question. Yep. Uh, the second one's around opportunities. I think as a broker, if you're if you're trying to diversify um, into this part of the market, the reality is most brokers have self-employed um, customers. Okay, um, so whether the self-employed customer, you know, has um, leases on on properties or they're looking to get cash out on um, some of their assets in order to twin jet back into the business, um, they, they are the sorts of conversations you need to be having. Other than you know, what's the best rate you want for your home loan? The other one is engaging with accountants, um, mm-hmm. and I think. So they're a really good opportunity for for a mortgage broker. Um, if you've got sort of a strategic relationship with an accountant or a referral relationship with an accountant, ask the question. You know, are you working with some of your your clients at the moment around tax debts? Because the reality, is it, it, I can actually help you provide a solution from a tax um, debt standpoint as well. So whilst it's not advice, it's just some 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 thought bubbles to to, to yeah. consider. Um, yeah, because sure. the reality is, there's over sixty billion in unpaid tax debt post COVID. Um, that's a lot of borrowers that need a, a solution. Yeah, there are a lot of business owners that, that need a solution to to pay that back. And, you know, private lenders can play a real role in, in helping with that. Yeah, absolutely. You've um, brought up a really interesting point there. I actually just read an article or saw a headline for an article. I didn't even read the article, <laughs> um, but I saw a headline for an article just recently in the last couple of days talking about how much tax debt that there actually is. And yes, post-COVID there has been quite an exponential increase in the amount of tax debt, but it's sort of, I think, just landing now as to um, a situation where the ATO are now actually really starting to need that to be paid because they've had they've given borrowers or they've given business owners, I should say, a lot of um, probably a little bit of slack coming out of the back of COVID, knowing that a lot of businesses have been in financial difficulty in order to pay that back. But now they're actually starting to getting a little bit tighter on when they need that, those funds to be repaid. And it's, it's you're absolutely spot on the, the reality is during lockdown and during that sort of real COVID, um, era for us, um, the ATO were instructed to just leave yep. tax debt component alone completely. So there were no phone calls being made. There were no emails being sent yeah. um, to, to these business owners and, and, and individuals around tax debts. But now given that the bill is so large and the actual, you know, the, the debt that Australia as a, a country has is quite significant. Mm. Uh, they need that money back. And yeah. you know, we're, we're sort of hearing figures of, you know, there's over 120 to 130 um, director penalty notices being issued on a daily basis. Jeez. Now, I'm again, I'm not an accountant, but uh, for those that don't know what director penalty notices are or DPNs as they're sort of referred to, is it's effectively if you've got a business tax debt, um, the, the, you can actually become personally liable. Mm. So, and that's a bit of a scary thought. So, you know, with 120 odd notices of DPNs being issued on a daily basis, um, it's it's very significant. So again, to put a positive lens on it for, for, for finance brokers, um, there's a real opportunity there to, to help both your existing self-employed um, customers, but also to go out and help new and identify new self-employed customers sure. through other referrers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Nick. I've really appreciated you coming on the podcast today and sharing your insights. I think this is a fantastic episode, not just for those business owners out there that are looking to borrow or are, are getting into, or I guess, sizing up some opportunities that they may have 
um, from a personal wealth creation perspective, but also for brokers that may be looking to, as you say, diversify more down that realm or have a lot of business clients um, that they're wanting to assist and make sure that they give them that really sort of holistic, uh, holistic financial assistance. So I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and taking the time today and yeah. Evelyn, thank you so much for, for having me on. I really appreciate it. I, I love the I love the chat. I, I, again, I agree with your sentiment. It's a, it's such a growing part of the market, um, and there's so much opportunity that exists for brokers, um, particularly those that are really sort of delving into this space. So, mm. um, I'd encourage any 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 brokers that are that are that are listening to the podcast to reach out to you know some of the the, the, the private lenders that exist on their panel, or reach out to their aggregator BDM to identify who those lenders are. Um, by means, you know, reach out to O Capital. We're here to help as well. Um, so yeah, anything that we can do to support you and your and your business customers, um, we're, we're we're here to help. And again, Ev, thanks for thanks for having me here today. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Nick. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of You Have My Interest. Remember to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. To find out more about how Everlend can help educate and empower you to achieve your goals with finance and property, just visit everlend.com.au forward slash podcast and book in a free discovery call.